Hello and welcome to another episode of Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm Amanda Comer. I'm a nurse practitioner and the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we're very excited to have on Dr. Barnett to talk to us about uh, diagnostic overshadowing and misdiagnosis. Dr. Barnett, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. So I'm Dr. Bob Barnett, and I am uh, pleased to serve as the Chief Medical Officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital Union County here in New Albany as part of the, uh, the three-state uh, 19 hospital Baptist healthcare system out of Memphis. Um, and so it's a great opportunity, I think, to, to talk about what's a very, very important, important topic. Before I start today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up something. Uh, uh, Sir William Osler was a preeminent internist at the turn of the last century, and probably many people think of him as the um, as the father of modern internal medicine. And uh, I think it's, you know, he's, he's, he's been attributed many, many great quotes, but I, I've got one I think that, that may show he was on top of this diagnostic overshadowing well over 100 years ago when he said, it is much more important to know what sort of patient has a disease than what sort of disease a patient has. I think that's an interesting thing to think about to lead us into this whole diagnostic overshadowing. So. Um, it was first described by Jones, Howard, and Thornycroft in 1982 in the Scandinavian Psychiatry Journal, uh, and it relates to providers' tendencies to misattribute symptoms of individuals with learning disabilities to their cognitive deficits, leading to underdiagnosis, insufficient or delayed care for comorbid medical conditions. Now, since that time, it's been applied in much broader terms to include those patients whom the providers lack the ability to accurately assess the patient's conditions due to lack of familiarity with or bias associated with the issues surrounding those patients. Things such as substance abuse, LG, LGBTQ identifications, obesity, or even in my area of expertise, pregnancy. So basically, diagnostic overshadowing leads to misdiagnosis and misdirected care. Um, in June of 2022, Sentinel event number 65 was released, which recognized diagnostic overshadowing as a challenge facing groups experiencing healthcare disparities. Now, many, many people have multiple pre-existing diagnoses or conditions, so this can occur in nearly any patient population. 15% of the world's population, or over a billion people, are estimated to have some form of disability, and clearly that number is on the rise due to the rise in chronic health conditions and to the population aging. Uh, individuals with disabilities are at greater risk for diagnostic overshadowing, and most clinicians really don't have adequate training, experience, or skills grounded in treating these individuals. Now, I think that's, that's really great background and a good um, overview and definition for what we're talking about when we talk about diagnostic overshadowing. So, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, it, it's, it sounds like we're attributing new symptoms to a patient's old diagnosis, especially those that might have um, a disability or some other um, disease that uh, it lends itself to, to potentially, you know, creating all sorts of different symptoms that you might get confused by. And so I, I think about the difference in Occam's razor and uh, Hickam's dictum, if you've heard that. So Occam's razor mm -hmm. is, you know, the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. Whereas Hickam's dictum is a patient can have as many diagnoses as they want. <laughs> so, um, and I've heard it also said, uh, a patient can have as many diagnoses as they damn well please, which I like that one a lot too. Exactly. But, <laughs> so, you know, 
there's there's a lot of articles written about this. I pulled one up from the New England Journal about the di- dangers of diagnostic overshadowing. And, and as an example, it gave a patient with um, multiple sclerosis that developed new symptoms of GI upset. And essentially, you know, long story short, the the care team delayed his care by nine months by by failing to properly evaluate him. Um, couldn't didn't get him out of the wheelchair and feel on his abdomen and realized he's got this distended abdomen. Scanned him at that time, ended up having a um, a gastrointestinal tumor um, that had to be resected, but was attributing everything to the patient's underlying um, disability and really failed to evaluate him because you know it, it's hard in clinic if you have a patient in a wheelchair to get them up and and do a proper physical exam, even though maybe some some wheelchairs allow you to actually lay it flat so you can do that. But um, I think those sorts of barriers and the, you know, a lot of times we, you know, attribute new symptoms to a patient's underlying condition. You know, how do you feel about that and what have you seen as far as examples go? Well, I think you're, you're right on in that regard. And, and it was interesting for me to run into a circumstance that away um, almost within two weeks after the, uh, the Sentinel event alert came out, uh, a pretty classic example where uh, there was a 30-year-old male who presented, had a lengthy history of alcoholism, and he presented the emergency department with shortness of breath and COVID exposure with symptoms. And now he wanted only a COVID test, period, was resistant to any form of, of assessment in other regards. Um, but uh, fortunately, the, the ER doc was, uh, was concerned enough and, and talked to him enough about getting some extra testing done. But interestingly, the majority of that work and the, uh, the treatment was geared towards alcohol abuse, potassium replacement, a banana bag, IV fluids, some labs, that kind of thing. And, and everything in that happened in the emergency room, um, including tremors and even a seizure and elevated heart rate, were all blamed on withdrawal. Uh, as the patient said, I, I've got a bottle in the in the uh, in the truck, and I can take care of this if I if I need to, kind of idea. But interestingly, um, this goes back to my experience where if a if a person who's been smoking for their entire life all of a sudden quits smoking, even though they don't tell you why, work them up extensively because they've seen something or they know something is wrong, right? I think that's an important idea. So um, basically, he's refusing detox or any kind of form of addiction help, and after a fever spike to 103.3, some talon was given, a chest X-ray was ordered which suggested possible early pneumonia, but favored a chest CT follow-up, but that was not done before the patient was actually diagnosed with, uh, discharged rather with a diagnosis of chronic alcoholism and hypokalemia. Now, sadly, he returned two days later in frank sepsis uh, and ultimately succumbed. So it's it's just a tragic circumstance, but that's that's a, a, another example of something there where, um, you know, we were not not clearly paying attention to the big picture. I mean, and, and again, the patient impacted that by his limitations for us, but um, uh, I think that's, that's an example. Uh, AHRQ had another example of a 72-year-old uh, woman who had a history of opioid abuse who was sent to the emergency department from a methadone clinic for some altered mental status. Now, she complained of epigastric and back pain with hypotension and tachycardia, but initially had a normal EKG and a troponin. Um, but CT scan showed multiple fractures in her thoracic and lumbar spine. Now, MRI was done and neurosurgery uh, saw her and advised observation till the following morning, but she was still complaining of epigastric pain throughout this entire window of time. Now, the next day's lab showed troponins in the 20s and a clear STEMI on her, uh, on her EKG. Now, I mean, she ultimately got stented and whatnot, but the delay to treatment was attributed to her continued pain for the fractures 
and was clouded by her history of the opioid abuse uh, and compromised her, her left ventricular function in the long term. So again, I think those are those are two great examples. So you know, I usually describe these situations as misdiagnosis in two broad categories, either knowledge deficits or cognitive bias. And by knowledge deficits, I think I'm saying that certain groups of patients have behaviors or characteristics that put themselves at risk for conditions about which the providers know very little by training or by personal experience. Now, bias is often described as prejudicial favor of one thing, group, or a person, which may or may not be easily recognizable at its surface. And I think both of those play into, into diagnostic overshadowing clearly. Now, it's my true hope that some of our ongoing efforts in the area of healthcare equity will shine some light on these causes and provide some opportunities to limit their impact on patients' outcomes. Um, many times these events will occur, as you say, in higher pressure environments where we're faced with many decisions to make and little opportunity to review the results of these decisions or even gain in, input or, or consult with other providers. Uh, it often occurs in the settings such as the emergency department or in my, my circumstances, the OBED, but it can also happen in clinicians' offices, as you, as you said. Uh, fully examining a patient in a wheelchair can be limiting for you, but it can happen anywhere where time constraints open the door for snap judgments. I think that's a, that's a big factor behind this. But also, there, we've got a long ways to, to go in terms of improving our interviewing techniques. Uh, Singh had an article in the Journal of General Internal Medicine back in 18, and they reviewed um, clinical encounters that were recorded, and clinicians in this study elicited the patient's true agenda in only 40 of 112, or 36% of the encounters. Staggering. Now, in 27 of the 40 that were looked at, or 67%, the clinician interrupted the patient after a median of 11 seconds. Now, previous studies have suggested that most patients will complete spontaneous talking within a mean of 92 seconds, but the fact that we're not giving them even that extra minute um, to really explain what their concerns are, what their issues are, you know, is certainly a, a factor. I know that everybody uh, feels pressured in terms of, of performing in, in this kind of, you know, time pressured environment, but uh, we, we owe it to our patients. Sir William Osler said, listen to the patient. He is trying to tell you what's wrong with him. That's a classic statement right there as far as that goes. That's a great tip. You know, really listen to the patient, give the patient time to tell you what is wrong with them. Um, what other tips do you have to, to mitigate diagnostic overshadowing? Well, I, I think you know, at, at some point you've got to appreciate just how great that this risk really is. Um, Pregnant women with a disability have, have a higher risk for developing severe pregnancy and birth-related complications and 11 times the risk of maternal death. That's staggering. Obviously, persons with physical, intellectual, or developmental disabilities have shorter life expectancies than those without. And having an intellectual disability was the strongest independent predictor of COVID-19 infection and the second strongest predictor of COVID-19 death. Now, that may be skewed somewhat because of age-related intellectual disabilities such as dementia and those kinds of factors leading to age-related issues, but I thought it was, it was fairly striking that those were that strong of a predictor for COVID death. Americans with disabilities are three times more likely to develop arthritis, diabetes, or a heart attack, five times more likely to experience depression, COPD, or stroke. They're more likely to be obese, and they clearly are more likely to have unmet medical, dental, or prescription needs, which probably contribute to all of the above. So, um, seven ways that I came up with to mitigate diagnostic overshadowing. I, I think the, the first one would be to, to beware when the presenting issue is new 
and the condition you're attributing to it is old. I mean, I think, Jake, that's exactly what, what you were kind of implying. I, mean, I think it's one of those kinds of things. I mean, you know, just because you, you've got this, this uh, ongoing issue that you're going you're gonna to look at, you've got you've to see what the new symptoms are and, and reevaluate them in that perspective. So for those with intellectual disabilities, you always have to consider that behavior is a form of communication. And you got to remain committed to finding out what's being communicated. And in that sense, listening to family and those close to the patient, I think, are important, just like caregivers. I mean, they can often have an excellent sense when something's not right with that patient. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's our job to educate, re-educate on disabilities and syndromes and other factors that have associated risks that for other diagnoses. And uh, when in doubt, consult with your colleagues freely if you're uncertain about anything. I mean, uh, two heads are better than one kind of idea, I think is really, is really true. When dealing with patients from any marginalized background, we need to think about second guessing ourselves as to what may be missing or what information would change our assessment. I mean, because you know, areas and, and individuals that are, that are not familiar to us by culture or circumstance are, are certainly gonna have, have other altered factors that, that uh, we may need to be thinking of. And obviously we need to make our facilities accessible from physical and behavioral perspective for all of our patients. I mean, I think those are the, the seven big ways that I came up with. Now it's interesting, you know, if you do a lot of reading on, on, um, on diagnostic overshadowing, you're gonna come across something, an issue called intersectionality, which is, uh, is a term, it's originally coined by Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, who is a Columbia and UCLA law professor with, with uh, an emphasis on race and gender issues. Now she views that the United States faces multiple forms of systemic discrimination that blocks individuals from equal opportunities. Now, the interesting concept is that these various oppressions or discriminations intersect and present unique challenges for communities and individuals. So the concept of intersectionality wants to recognize that these overlap and produce different kinds of barriers. Now, not everybody I think agrees with this fundamental view, but if so, I think it needs to be applied across all persons. Um, but looking at looking at, at people who are uh, who are in that uh, oppressed or discriminated or or that intersectional group, um, there are certain things that we can do also that are going to help to improve their voice uh, for their own causes. Um, we may not be able to get marginalized people necessarily in our highest leadership positions in the hospital framework, but certainly we can have community advisory councils or those kinds of things uh, to give them you know better voice and better impact. Um, to practice inclusivity when we're talking about issues, um, to acknowledge the impact that these kind of barriers have on family structure and traditional family structure, uh, to ensure that our data collection is not disaggregated. I think that that's one of the things, look at working with Vizient as we are now, I think that gives us an excellent opportunity to both look at healthcare disparities and, and look at you know, our, ourselves in terms of how we compare with other institutions and other, other health systems. Um, because just being aware of healthcare inequities and their root causes, I think, is, is a big piece of this. And obviously, to consider the unintended un consequences of, of uh, the actions on marginalized groups. One thing we're facing in Mississippi, obviously, is the closing of hospitals in the Delta region. Now, you look at the fact that those uh, that you're putting basically people who have limited resources at increased distance to access to care. Uh, and so they don't have the ability uh, to basically to, to get there uh, anymore. And I think that that's a that's a, a big factor that needs to be looked at in perspective. So the uh, the Sentinel event number 65 had a few specific recommendations, which were to create awareness through education, which obviously things like this podcast I hope will do, 
um, I encourage everybody to go out and, and, uh, and look this up and, and read a little bit about it to gain some, some better understanding. Um, we need to regularly review our diagnostic accuracy and quality and safety. And I think our hospitals really do. I feel I'm very proud to be a part of the Baptist system in terms of how we work quality uh, here at Union County. I know our people take that very seriously and, and uh, you know, seek to be a true flagship in terms of how quality parameters are met and assessed. And the opportunity of a small hospital to drill down sometimes gives us, gives us that benefit. We have a long ways to come in terms of, uh, of teaching and learning and listening techniques to better gain the patient engagement and the whole concept of uh, shared decision making. Uh, I think that's a factor. Uh, to collect data about pre-existing conditions and disabilities and maybe create uh, electronic medical records prompts for physicians to, to be able to, um, to give us some, you know, some kind of a, a light up or a, or a you know, best practice a, a alert. Um, to use that intersectional framework when assessing groups prone to diagnostic overshadowing and overcome the cognitive biases that, that are related to that. And lastly, obviously, they recommend that we review institutional ADA compliance. So we need to remember that number 66 Sentinel event was uh, specifically addressing healthcare disparities. So, you know, I've always thought that I would uh, have sought to, to live up to this, this quote of, of Sir William Osler, which is, the good patient treats the disease, the great physician, the good physician treats the disease, the great physician treats the patient with the disease. I think there's something to be said about that. He was some, he was certainly something. No, yeah, there's there's all sorts of great anecdotes about, about him. One that comes to mind was a, a patient that was complaining of, of back pain, and I think the resident that was working with him you know, had diagnosed him with, you know, maybe it was some musculoskeletal complaint and he lifts up the patient's shirt and the patient has um, shingles on the back. And it's like, that's all you had to do was examine the patient and you right. would have gotten to the exact diagnosis. Right. But, um, you know, so you talked a lot about, you know, ways to mitigate and also about how big of a deal it was. Um, so mm -hmm. the Institute of Medicine, you know, that did the to, to Ayers Human report, you know, back in, was it 1999? Um, also put something out in 2015 on improving diagnosis in healthcare, and they said it was the next big frontier um, in patient safety. And so they they put out some statistics on how big of a deal it was, and I think it was like one in six patients had experienced a diagnostic error, and you know that's either getting the wrong diagnosis, you know, getting the wrong uh, test, or having a delay. Um, in, in care, like we described earlier with that patient that went nine months before that diagnosis of cancer. Um, but they also suggested some ways to reduce it, which I think you hit on a bunch. And the first one that they recommended was effective teamwork in the diagnostic process, including talking with other healthcare professionals and the patients and their families, which you um, alluded to, which I think is especially important with patients with disabilities or and cognitive disabilities where you can't get the full maybe you don't get the full picture from the the patient um, and you need to talk with their family or their proxy to understand really is this their baseline has it changed what are you seeing why are you concerned and bring them in mm -hmm. um, I think that is a good point the the other thing that is you know they they want to ensure that our healthcare technology support the diagnostic process. And you talked about that a little bit with that decision support. And so there's a couple of things that I think are interesting uh, today that may help us with this in the future. Um, one is, you know, we're on Epic here. Epic has this new program. It's not, I don't think it's yet live, um, but it 
the way they're framing it is they're going to be able to surface uh, patients like the patient in front of you from across all of Epic hospitals in the country and the world. So if you are having a patient in front of you with a unique set of uh, conditions, um, they will you know, compare that to their database of other patients and what have other physicians done with that patient? What diagnoses did that uh, these patients from across the world have for that patient. So that, the goal there is to really pick up on rare diseases maybe that you wouldn't be familiar with and be able to um, help get you to maybe an expert in the country that uh, sees those regularly or at least get you down the right diagnostic pathway, which I think is really interesting. The other thing, I don't know if you've played around with chat GPT, but that's you know been big over the last couple of months. You know, it's this large language model that um, – artificial intelligence that you can ask all sorts of questions. Um, you know, I've played around with it a good bit, asking it to write, you know, uh, a letter to an insurance company to, you know, for a prior authorization or something like that. But one thing you can also do is you can ask it, you can give it a clinical scenario and ask it to generate a differential diagnosis. So on Saturday, I was um, working a hospital shift and I had a, a 30 year old that came in with a uh, uh, polyarticular pain and swelling. And, you know, it's one of those things where it could be a lot of different things. And I wanted to make sure that I at least got down the right path of what all I needed to to check, um, what tests I needed to run. So I just asked it and it spit out 10, 12 diagnoses and potential tests to run. So I think those sorts of tools will be coming soon to, to physicians to help improve this process. I think that's an excellent example of that kind of thing, the direction where AI is going to is going to move. Um, I used to talk about, um, you know, I'd love to tell you that every physician is created equally, but sometimes it's your training, sometimes it's your experience. But I mean, I had the had the great fortune of going to Washington University in St. Louis for medical school, which is, you know, considered one of the one of the better ones in the country. And and there we sort of had an attitude that says, you know, he who can generate a differential diagnosis of 50 things is probably better than he could only generate a diagnosis, a differential of, of 25 things, because those other 25 things aren't even on the other person's radar, mm -hmm. you know? And I think it's one of those things where AI is going to, going to give us the opportunity to, to look at those other 25 things uh, that, that unique combinations of symptoms or, or signs will, will bring to light. So that's, that's an excellent opportunity, you bet. Of course, like you say, you got to listen to the patient, you know, you got to listen to what they do. You got to examine them, I mean, to take the time. Um, that's where, um, you know, they're just just it's important to, to realize that you've got to invest the time in the patient. And, and that's that's difficult in this era of of, um, you know, get them in, get them done, get them out. So. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah and we didn't mention, but a lot of di diagnosis errors or diagnostic errors occur late in the day, you know, at the end mm -hmm. of your shift, you know, after lunch or, you know. You know, so if you if you're a patient with a new diagnosis, you want to you want to come early in the morning to get seen when the doctor's fresh after the first <laughs> cup of coffee. Right. Yeah. yeah. We've also you know, you mentioned the team based approach or, or utilizing or leveraging the team. And, and I think Dr. Lancaster, you and I have talked about this before, but, you know, the NP goes in and gets one story. The medical student goes in and gets another story. And then the attending goes in and gets a totally different story, you know, all from the same patient. Um, so it's interesting just to gather all that information from from each of the individuals. 
I like that concept of um, basically engaging the patients uh, in, in the uh, the joint decision making kind of process. That that engaging them in in deciding the direction their healthcare goes. I mean, for for labor and delivery, that's that's a progressively old, now becoming new again model. Um, you know, where there are options in terms of monitoring, there's options in terms of anesthesia, there's options in terms of diet, you know, those kinds of things, et cetera. And so there's some progress being made in terms of, you know, engaging patients in terms of the, you know, the, the decision making in terms of how actively, you know, or not actively they want to have their labor managed for that matter. I think healthcare still, even in that sense, is, you know, can go in lots of other, uh, other directions, but that's, that's a great one right there. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. I, I feel like we covered a lot of great information. Do you have any last words of advice for the medical staff listening to this? I think the answer is take the time, listen to the patient, and um, and always remember that uh, you could always be wrong. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the reality right there. I mean, strive to do your best. Well, I'm an internist, and I like diagnosing, you know, rare things. So if there's anybody else listening, there's a book by Lisa Sanders called Every Patient Tells a Story. Essentially, it walks you through about 12 different zebra cases um, where the patient has uh, strange things. And also she does a a column in the New York Times. I don't know if it's every month, um, but where they'll go through a, a, you know, a case. And oftentimes there'll be misdiagnoses or diagnostic errors in the beginning uh, before arriving at a rare one. But, uh, you know, Lots of good ways to keep you sharp and and help you remember what else is out there. Um, But thanks again, Dr. Barnett, and thank you for everybody for listening to another episode of Right Care Baptist. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit. Thank you for having me.